five four three two one zero and liftoff. Dispatches, a production of Blur Bank, is an in-depth look at those living artistic lives. Each episode will feature photographs and audio interviews with narrative pioneers who have taken creativity and publishing in their own hands. From artists to authors, photographers to philosophers, Dispatches will reveal the faces and foundations of those who lead the creative way. Hey everybody, I am uh, recording today, believe it or not, from my living room, which is pretty rare, but um, of all places in the world for a, a photographer friend from Europe to descend upon, Costa Mesa, uh, I couldn't believe it, but I'm with Anne Christine Worrell. How are you doing today? Very fine in your living room. Yes. And you sent me an email a couple of weeks ago and said, I'm going to be in Costa Mesa. And I thought for sure that that was like a typo. I'm like, why would you be coming to Costa Mesa? But, but lo and behold, you are in Costa Mesa. And, uh, but before we get to why you're here, which is a pretty interesting project. I have a couple other questions for you. So I went back through your website and, you know, came up with some things. You, you ready for this? Not sure. Knowing we've, that my website is so bad. <laughs> we've had chocolate-covered honeycomb and blackberries, so I think we're fired up, right? <laughs> so you are a photographer, full-time photographer. Full-time photographer. Is that, if I met you at a party and I said, what did you do, how would you describe what you do? <laughs> I think I'd, I kind of did meet you at a party. Was it a party? It was quite serious. It was a photo festival, wasn't well, it? I mean, it was supposed to be serious. <laughs> yeah, but photo <laughs> festivals are basically about the parties. Let's, that let's, is true. Yeah. That is true. So we met in 2005 Five. in Photo Fusion, the event in Florida, which I didn't remember until this afternoon. Exactly. Yeah. I looked it up, too. I was thinking, how many years is it ago? And it was, yeah, 2005 when I had the exhibition on the India work, yes. I don't even remember what the world was like in 2005. There I was no, there was it. nothing. And we, we were far from everything anyway, so we're yeah. now a bulb of, <laughs> of you know, microcosm of photography. Yeah, it was a, it's a weird to think back on those, on those dates. But you are a photographer based in Munich. I'm in Munich. But you basically travel all the time. I travel all the time. That's why I'm so happy to come to this little town. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good way of putting it. A little, it is a little town. And you're half French and half German. Exactly. And does, do you ever catch yourself like saying you do something and you go, God, that was so French or vice versa. Oh, that was so German. You have, that has to happen. Yeah, but it's more that people tell me, oh my God, that was so... <laughs> It's not that I'm correcting myself, but they're correcting me, telling me, hey, man, that's, that was typically... The good thing is that they always say to me, oh, you're not German at all. You don't seem so German. And that reassures me, actually, that <laughs> makes sense. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you don't seem overly German to me. But then again, I don't know what overly exactly. German what is. Exactly, what So, I don't know. But it, it has this <laughs> something to it, which makes me sort of feel relieved that I can rely onto another culture, which sort of sneak out sometimes when it's better to sneak out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got to use them strategically. Exactly. You know, when it, maybe the food... food time comes around then you're the french you're half french but and the um, overly disciplined and all that punctual yeah, can be German. annoying and can be sometimes it helps yeah exactly yeah, so you yeah. gotta put it the way it should be put what languages do you speak so french and german obviously and then english of course more or less. just just, three <laughs> just for that interview and then spanish so just four just four and I'm learning Italian now, actually, because my agency is based in Milan. So ah. I figured with the six other macho Italian photographers, I better be you learning better, to defend yeah. myself. We're like two girls, and we're lost on the highway. Yeah, you better, you better bone up on the, on the Italian. <laughs> exactly. which, um, which agency are you with? It's the Echo Photojournalism. 
echo photojournalism. Speaking of agencies, yes. my second question, you did an internship at Magnum. Yes. What was that like? Was it, that be was, honest, was it hellish or was it actually kind of interesting? No, I think, I mean, retrospectively, it was probably the most exciting time of a agency because they were just about to digitalize all their archives. So I was still ah. lucky to work the old way yeah. <laughs> and have these three color boxes, red for politics, I think, and blue for social, cultural issues. And so that was for me to have, it's like having been able to work in a dark room. It's literally, you know, have gone through the essentials and and now that everything is on computers it's mm, obviously it's a nice thing to have but to know how it used to be and to have that appreciation also that whole structure of it i mean it really goes back to the boxes where i was looking for and prints. what was your what was your job as an intern at magnum and which office were you in but the thing is i'm mean, coming back to the languages actually it's it, that probably gave me a special um task because i was in charge for all the clients for germany for ah, instance. okay and also for some English clients, because French are not so... <laughs> <laughs> not yeah, so <laughs> on the old English <laughs> thing, yeah. So it kind of helped me, I guess, to be able to have a very nice task and to look into the boxes and do the editing and send it out the wow. old-fashioned way. And were you in the Paris clients. office? I was in the Paris office. It was okay. Back then it was Passage Piver, I think it was, yeah, close to République. And no, it was back then, there was Francois Bell, who was the director. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, now I have a wonderful, and it was just great to look at all this work. I realize now retrospectively that in that time, when you, even as an intern, you try to do it the best you can, so sometimes you don't allow yourself the time you would do to just study the photographs or just, you know, see what is your own mm, outcome of it, of, of studying really. Yeah others uh, photographs and all that so that's the only thing that i thought oh if i had taken more time to to look study, to look at it and just don't have that pressure to think like oh god i have to really do the best i can and but that goes with the age and you know i think at that time of of your life you're still trying so you were you were at the very beginnings of your career yeah that okay. was really like with 20 was there any pr one particular photographer that you thought man this work is is really this is what I want to do. I think Joseph Kudaka, I really loved his work right from the beginning, and I had the chance to meet him also. So I think sometimes it, it's nice when you have the author <laughs> yeah. with the work and uh, sort of the, the human behind. So maybe that helped also. But a part of him as a person, I think just his language is just really outstanding. Excellent. So you left Magnum, but yeah. then you also worked with two pretty amazing photographers. You worked with... Yeah. David Turnley? Yes. And Reza? Exactly. And are you sure it was David Turnley and not Peter Turnley? Were you, was there <laughs> ever so a day? I'm sure. Peter was just living around the corner. <laughs> I'm so sure it was David. There had to be a day where you woke up and you're like, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> was there a swap? So you work with David Turnley. And at, what, what, uh, what was Turnley? Was there, because he worked in South Africa for a long time. Exactly. It was obviously, this was post his South Africa work. Post South Africa. And he was living back then with his wife and his son. Charlie in Paris and okay. I think he'd come back maybe yeah only a couple of years back I think yeah and he was basically looking for somebody to assist his assistant um, to prepare the retrospective they both had together at the ICP New York ah, okay so it was kind of a intense yeah I think a couple of months um, 
where he was trying to do the edit of his whole archive for this big retrospective. So that allowed That's me a lot. really, and I was, I mean, yet again, I was also trying to just get the load of work done with every day, all the prints, like, I don't know, thousand prints came from the lab, like small, oh yeah, yeah, small editing lecture prints. And I was just, you know, archiving and catalogizing more or less getting the the right year, the right sheet of the travel with the with the um, how you call it the cliche the um, the photograph the, um, the caption no when you have the the whole roll the right no oh, how you call it I got it in French it's a cliche um, a cliche a, a cliche what? it's so cliche no um, when you just have to now find the right number of the pin but obviously it was taking from situations like four or five. Um, frames, so yeah. it gets a bright frame. So okay, that was number A, I don't know, six A, <laughs> and then so it took a lot of time to do it all by hand. But it, it really, I mean, it's great to look at the work of somebody who's been in all places all over and yeah. probably covering all the conflicts of that time. It's quite to have history in your hand and and be able to look at it and to also see how somebody works and how somebody approaches because yeah. that was actually. I've been going through all the contact sheets to sort of be able to do that work. So it was great. And part of that was great working with him. And no, it was a wonderful experience. And I realized that these experience probably narrow down your own path much, much more. And you learn so much more. Yeah, for than, sure. You know, yeah. learning everything in anything theory and also realizing, is that really the job I want to be doing myself later am I going to be able to yeah to be that kind of I mean that of course you never have the answer and you just have to go and see um with the years but um it definitely tests you on a different level I think yeah it's great and what was Reza like I met him at Perpignan years ago and I had a really good chance to sit down and talk to him for a while he was a pretty Mm -hmm. interesting guy I actually have a picture of his tacked up on my file cabinet in that other room it's the one of uh Shah Shah Massoud yeah the Afghan commander really you have no wow it's a it's out of a magazine I don't have an actual print. Oh, don't get your hopes I, I up. Thought, I, oh, God, no. yeah, I never got one, so yeah, I would have been really offended. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't get your hopes up. I think it was I think it was in the geographic. It's like a full page thing. I'll show you. I tore it I'm out. I'm just going to steal up. it after. It's okay. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> I, I have more. I made 10,000 copies. What was, how were those guys different? I mean, Reza, I was doing a complete different work. I mean, I was working in the dark room. Oh, and wow. uh, the fascinating thing about it was that he, well, I was quite, I felt quite honored in that sense that he had the old roles from the uh, Iranian revolution who wow. were f- not very well fixed back then. Okay, yeah. And so my task was basically to re-fix them? them. Oh man, that's heavy. And that was kind of a responsibility I really felt like on my shoulders. <laughs> I <wasn't> yeah. <laughs> I wasn't the most relaxed person in that small dark room at that time, <laughs> I must say. And the thing was, of course, they were they were cut already into oh, in the pieces strips. of the, in, in strips. So I had to, you know, re-roll them like we know it from. So it was a kind of a long process, but it was obviously fascinating to hold that piece of history <laughs> in your yeah. hands of that record. And then after he had done a big work in Cambodia, I remember, and... So I was doing the developments and the contact sheets. and Wow, that's and a lot of responsibility. Sheets. No, it was like on everything I have to say. And so both works were really, really distinctive. And as persons, um, I think, I mean, Reza back then, he was working in a, in a quite 
family structure in the sense that he was working with his brother together. Okay. Who back then, now he's been still in the hospital, I think. He'd been injured. But there was, they had sort of this, this office and his wife was working with him. So it was a, was, mm, so he wasn't that present either, you know. And I was really like in my closed little, little dark room doing my, my things and, you know, coming out once and then. <laughs> and with David, it was a much more, let's say, intense work to work together because it was much more implied in the editing and it oh, okay. was a, a really great and a, a very nice friendship evolved out of this now we lost track a little of each other but i know he's back in the states and for many years now well it's funny because when i saw you last was in paris yeah right yeah and uh right before the attacks exactly and we held a blurb event the night before which was the launch of the lost rolls project with ron Haviv. exactly in the so same building that peter turnley lives to floors above no. where yeah where the show was so one of the photographers that came to the show um who i'm spacing out on chicago based john lowenstein was staying with um at peter's apartment yeah so <laughs> so, so basically awesome. everyone is connected in some weird shape so this is this is a tricky question but it's come up a couple of times in the past few days so when you're i assisted for people as well I'd never printed in the darkroom for anyone, but I assisted for a guy that shot like four by five medical parts. I assisted for a guy that shot commercial work for Adidas and all kinds of things. I shot for, I assisted for a guy that did editorial. And when I was in college, I discovered that I really loved black and white. I liked grainy, contrasty black and white. And so I started to do essays and someone looked at one of my essays and said, hey, this reminds me of Antonin Cretacqueville. And I was a little freaked out because I remember going into the archives at the university I went to, and there was a news photographer magazine with an article about Kratokville basically fleeing from Czechoslovakia and then, you know, in the trunk of a car or something. And then sort of it was the beginnings of his career. And I remember seeing that work and thinking, I really love this work. So when the person said to me, hey, your work looks like, reminds me of Kratokville, I was both flattered, but then also a little bit paranoid that like maybe I thought, am I copying this person? And so there are two schools of thought about copying copying people. And one is that it's a bad thing. You shouldn't copy people. The other one is obviously we're all influenced by other people. And I was listening to a designer the other day that said, oh, if you want to learn about design, find designs that you want, put a piece of tracing paper over the top of it and copy it. And you'll start to understand the dynamics of how things work. You don't necessarily have to take that to fruition and copy something specifically, but you'll you'll kind of learn from it. So when it comes to like Reza and Turnley and being around Magnum, was there, was that a conscious, did you ever think that? Like, are these guys really influencing me or was it you learned more of the business side and sort of like what it was culturally like to be a photographer, not the nuts and bolts of actually framing and shooting? Yeah, I think maybe what you're saying is probably very subconsciously processed, I could imagine, because I've never thought like, oh, I want to photograph like him or the other or I think it's more subconscious process that you get to see work and you get to see mm, perspectives and compositions and I think of course it influences you and I think that's all to be I mean that's all about educating your eye yeah in any case so um and I was never referred to it I've, I've never actually I've never thought about it to what extent both of them you know through this influenced work I was you. doing influenced me yeah. really I think for me as I said earlier it was so um, very fruitful to just live even though being in the office and not being on the field with that yeah. photographer yeah. but just 
get another idea of what this job what it really means and how much time also you spend with so much other shit than well, photographing. Well, that, that's, a, that's a really good question. I want to skip ahead and get to that, which is when you're, and when I assisted, I assisted for people for the most part, except for one person who we kind of shot similar things. Everyone else photographed things that I had no interest in. So they knew that I wasn't being an assistant to learn what they were doing so that then I could go and do it. I didn't want to shoot medical parts. I don't want to shoot a four by five. I don't want to shoot commercial work. So they, it was a good balance. I liked the people, they liked me, and they, I think, respected my opinion on things, not just like carrying bags. But when you're around them, you start to understand that like photography is maybe like 5% of the equation. It's the business and the marketing and the filing images and finding images and delivering images. How much of a, of a shock was that, per se, of kind of going, wow, you know, this is a lot of work. This is a little bit about mm -hmm. photography, but it's a lot about being a photographer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it makes you really ask yourself, am I ready as a person for it? Because it's really kind of a tough and competitive business. Yeah. And I remember I met, God, that was when, 97? I was in in New York and I was happened to meet, um, what's his name, Keller. He was back oh, then. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Uh, was, he used to be also director, I think, for some time at Magnum. Yeah, I think I know who you're talking about. And so he was after having his own agency. And for some, I don't even remember how I met. Oh, it was through ICP. I met him. And then he asked me if I wanted to work a little in the agency. And I said, why not? I'm just going to do that besides. And my sister was living in New York back then. So, I, you know, I could stay yeah. there for a month or six weeks. I don't remember. And I was working for him. And I remember that he told me, you know, there are only sharks out there. So you better get Only ready sharks. For, <laughs> yeah. You better get ready for that. And I remember it, I was completely intimidated back then. And I thought, am I going to really be ready for this as a person? Because I'm obviously not, um, I don't feel, consider myself as a very tough person. I'm, I think I've learned with being a photographer, of course, you, you personally get shaped yeah. in a certain way. But I remember I really reached a point of, thinking oh my god maybe <laughs> maybe this is just not the job I should do maybe I just should do something I was I love music and I love jazz and I played piano so I was always thinking maybe I'm more that's a cool job too though jazz <laughs> I know. piano player I was really I was visualizing myself in these jazz bars nobody really listening <laughs> <you know? laughs> jazz is dying though that's what I, I keep hearing jazz in LA is I totally dead <laughs> Yeah. So, um, back to your question. I mean, I I had really moments of doubts if I'm really ready for this, and but I sort of had that inner f mm, feeling that there was a reason why I was doing this, and I wanted to touch subject matters or have a have a sense to what I'm doing and to my life. You know, give it a sense, a really proper sense, where I could feel like okay. In a little part, I've somehow contributed to something. And so I think that was what got me going. So when you left Turnley and Reza, was it after that experience that you went to the Eddie in, uh, in New York, Eddie Adams yeah, workshop? Yeah, exactly. That was right okay. after I went to Eddie Adams. Yeah, so I'm curious and about Missouri, that. And to Missouri workshop. I went to the, and Missouri workshop. the boot camp. I always call it misery instead of Missouri. <laughs> but, you know, I like to make fun of it. I, like I probably fun. I agree it was my most traumatic. <laughs> so... I'm curious about that because yeah. I have been to the Eddie, Eddie Adams workshop, for those of you listening. This is, um, look it up online if you want to figure out what it is. 
I went first back in the 90s when I was working for Kodak, and Kodak was a sponsor of the Eddie Adams Workshop. In fact, I think they were a big sponsor at Maybe the time. Maybe that's where we met, no. Uh, I don't know. It was probably like 97, 98. And so, but I didn't go as a photographer. I went as a Kodak person, which in turn meant that all I was doing was I was a shuttle driver. I literally drove one of the classes around for an entire week or something. It was horrible, like bad hours, bad hotels, stuck in a room with someone else, et cetera. But anyway, it was a pretty interesting experience to be around because I'd already been a photographer for many years before that and in the documentary world. So I knew some of the students coming in. I knew a lot of the faculty. And it was at that time, I'm not sure what it's like now, but it was a really intense thing where you basically showed up, you were partnered with a photographer and an editor, you chose a story, you photographed, you processed your film, you edited and you presented and it was this big deal. What did that experience do for you? Was it a shock? Was it like stressful? Did you did anything come of it? Because at the time, they had a contest where there was a winning student from every colored group. So you had eight red, blue, green, black groups, etc. There was a winner from each one and then a grand winner and the winner from each class got like an assignment from, like my buddy Eric won and he got an assignment anywhere in the world for AP that he wanted to go. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what, so, I mean, how was the experience for you? Because that tends to be something that launches people. Yeah, yeah that's true. I don't remember if Missouri is just before, because I did that in the same time. That's like I a double in, whammy. I was so, if Missouri had been before, I must have <laughs> <laughs> experienced it as something more, not as stressful because misery i have to say was misery was misery not, misery was really misery that's I was, not good i was about to quit actually I, that was the moment where i reached and then what went wrong no i think i was really too young and inexperienced to be ready for that kind of workshop because it's literally that people have had some experience and i already in you know mm, no i was just not ready for it and i was not ready to for that kind of constructive criticism. I don't know yeah. if it was so constructive as that, you know. That just criticism. Point. It was just criticism. Yeah. Quite harsh. destructive. It's quite harsh. And it was just my work. And I completely agree that they destroyed me completely because now I realized the work wasn't at that point. But I think, you know, I was 21 years old, 20, and I didn't have any experience, working experience so far. Yeah. So I don't even know, you know, how I got into this. So Eddie Adams, I, I remember it was very intense hours too, but on a human level, and it was much more constructive in a way that it was, uh, it was intense, but I didn't have that vision. Maybe by then I was so fatalistic and about to, <laughs> to quit photography that maybe I thought, okay, whatever, <laughs> whatever experience I get out of it is, is enriching. So I was not in that, I don't remember myself being aiming for that grand or being the best of the group. I didn't have that gene at that time. And that's why probably Mr. Keller from New York told me, you better, you better get, get ready, ready for it. The <laughs> interesting thing to me about the Eddie was not, um, was really not any of the photography that came out of it. That the Eddie to me represented a glimpse into mm -hmm. what the industry mm -hmm. and your life is going to be like. So, and that, and, uh, and that means in the best case scenario and in the worst, worst. case scenario. So you had really competitive people. You ha I had this kid in the van who was just obsessed with finding someone with a gun to point the gun at him because he thought that's what represented photojournalism and I got to get somebody with a gun. And, and we were like, don't do that. That's a stupid idea and you shouldn't do that. And lo and behold, we drop him off and he disappears. He finds some guy out in the woods with a gun to point at him and he gets his pictures of the gun. You had that, you know, those kind of like strange people there. But then at the same time, 
at night, Bill Epperidge, who was uh, Bobby Kennedy's photographer, came in and told this story and showed a print of the picture of Kennedy the night he was assassinated in the kitchen of the hotel in L.A., and the, 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 the waiter is holding his head up, and it's the definitive image of that moment. It is literally the image of Bobby Kennedy assassination. And it is uh, that he, was, he made the print, and it was like a 16 by 20 silver gelatin print. And when Life magazine folded, they called him and said, we have this print, we're going to ship it to you. And he said, I'm not, don't ship it, I'm coming to get it. So he flew to New York, got the print, flew back to California, and he, it, he thought he was going to put it on the wall. But it was so traumatic for him to look at that he couldn't put it on the wall. He stuffed it behind his couch in his house and then went on assignment, and a forest fire came through and burned his house to the ground. So he's sitting out there, hasn't been able to go back to his house. He finally gets permission to go back, and he thinks everything is gone. And he walks up, and he sees his house, and it's just burned down to the slab, except his couch is still there. It's burned, but it's still there. And he goes, that's weird. And he goes behind the couch and pulls out this box, which is partially burned, and inside the box is the Kennedy print. And it's burned in this like perfect circle around the outside of the image. And so Epridge comes to Eddie and gives this presentation. I'm literally getting goosebumps mm-hmm. thinking too, about actually. this. Yeah. So it's, it's dead quiet in that barn. And the image, the burned print, uh, it's, he basically projects the image in, compl- in complete form, perfect. And then it slowly fades out, and the burned print fades in over the top of it. And nothing happens for like a minute. It's dead quiet. No one moves. It, you can hear a pin drop. And then it just erupts, and people stand up at this like standing ovation. A friend of mine just bolts for the door, and I found him later, and I said, what happened? He goes, I couldn't take it. He goes, that was literally the single most incredible moment I've ever had in photography. So to me, that's what the Eddie was about, was about like, hey, kids, basically. This is the good and the bad and the ugly all right here. And I think it was actually, I don't know what it's like now, but I think at the time it, was, it provided a service almost for people. So I think that advice from Keller was like, probably pretty on the money you know you got to like be prepared for the for the ugliness no that's absolutely true and i met him now two years ago in new york at the icp at an opening of elliot Irvid actually of the exhibition and he looked at me and we hadn't had any contact (laughs) since and he looked at me and i said i I remember you and he's like i remember you too (laughs) (laughs) and then i recalled him what he said and and i said actually i have to thank you for that and back then I thought, oh my God, this is, he's destroying me even more after Missouri. I'm just going <laughs> to look for some jazz bars <laughs> where beginners can also yeah. start. <laughs> yeah, I'll go into music. Exactly, <laughs> after all. So when I, if I, if you and I went out tonight into Newport, right, and we're hanging out and a friend of mine comes up and says, you know, and I say, hey, I want you to meet Anne Christine. She's from Germany. She's a photographer. You on the surface, because I don't know all the details of your life, but what I've noticed over the years having been a photographer is that there is a public idea of what it's like to be a photographer. So the fact that you just were in Colombia and I saw you in Paris and you're, tra- you're always traveling, you're working on projects, you're doing books, you're doing exhibitions. In many people's eyes, that is like literally the dream job. That, that's the, dro- the job that they look at photography and they go, oh my God, it's the most exotic, wonderful thing in the world. And it is a pretty remarkable career, but what's the reality of the balance between like what people think photography is and what your life actually is? Because typically there's, you know, it's tough. It's not easy doing what you're doing. Mm. There's a million reasons to start playing jazz. Again. <laughs> exactly. 
I might be considered actually. <laughs> no, I mean, the thing is that you have to really, it took a couple of years to come to that point where now at least I'm able to touch subject matters and find platforms where I can express them. Because for me, the printing publication, all that, is not that's not my focus in photography because it's just not you know that's not where with too many photographers and not enough printing anymore I guess so I really you have to shift and I'm so thankful for that that I managed to find platforms like museums or galleries to do the subject matters and that but we're talking like five five years basically that I'm able to do this and beforehand you know I've been doing assignments and other kind of work of photography but I always thought it's kind of distracting from the focus you really should have also in your content I mean it's yeah. it's so so for five years you've been sort of operating under the system that you're operating now yeah I think that it really works well in the sense that all the projects I've been doing have ended up either in books or museum exhibitions or, you know. And prior to that, you were sort of scrambling. Yeah, I mean, there, I was, there were, I mean, I must say, probably I was lucky that still every kind of project somehow, you know, ended in something as an exhibition. But to that, let's put it more... Um, I mean, yeah, basically, subtle. things yeah. five years ago, things really gelled and you sort of figured out your, your way of working... And yeah, I think it, it narrowed down more and more. And I just realized, you, I mean, this you better be sort of concentrated and focus on the contents and on the issues you want to do and where you want to, which kind of platform you want to uh, have that displayed in, instead of trying to survive and then but losing the, f the long-term focus on what you do. I think on, on the long run, you better, I just realized I'm much better off now that I've been really... <laughs> You know, nailing it, nailing it down, and putting all my energy into that, have has brought me much further in my career. I mean, career is always a really it's a tricky word, a tricky word, and you know, just for my own my own path, I wanted to to take. You know, and um, before that, I felt like I was always trying to, and of course, the survival and the financial aspect is is very important. But once I decided to do, okay, I'm gonna do edition prints. I'm gonna sell it as edition prints. All this decision has brought me so much further also on the financial aspect. So it's that's what I'm trying to say, that somehow everything got into its place. And I mean, I don't know if it was just really lucky or if it was really like having that long breath, because of course, the moments where you think, oh God, I gotta quit it. Or I would rather think maybe it's better to do another job in order to earn the money, but still have that focus in your photography and don't get, get distracted. Yeah within the contents. I think that's really, for me, like what I've learned out of. I think there's a lot of people facing that situation right now, and it's something that I tell people all the time, that as an, I don't work as a photographer anymore, and because of that, I have certain advantages that I didn't have as a photographer. Mm -hmm. So I realized, I think, in 97, that if I had a job that was maybe photo-related, um, not shooting pictures, but like around the industry that paid me, then I would have all this time to do my own projects. And, that was, and it worked that way. And I was like, okay, well, that's pretty interesting. But let's say looking, looking back when you started and where you are now in terms of success level, did you ever have a vision of like what success actually meant mm -hmm. as a photographer? Was it like just that people knew your images or was it that people knew you? Or Because I never really, I don't think I ever really had a vision of what success was. I was just so focused on the actual no, photographs. No, same for me. I think that's why when we came to the term career, it's more that you get to a point where 
think, okay, I can survive with what I'm doing. And of course, I mean, to make photographs, to have a certain visibility, I mean, that's the purpose that you communicate it somehow. So I think that's for me, it just fell into its place that I can follow um, the subject matters I want to, and I'm not depending on any uh, publisher, magazine who tells me what to do, because I, every time I do an assignment and they send me for five days somewhere, I'm thinking, this is not the story. I mean, this is how are you possibly be able to get into a depth where you have like literally three days probably to do it because one day flying in, <laughs> flying out. I had that last year in Mauritania and I thought this is just not, this is not. That was an uncanny transition because my next question was, <laughs> is it better to be on assignment or on your own? On your own. <laughs> <laughs> it was the same for me and you just answered the question. That's amazing. <laughs> and that's something too that a lot of young photographers don't understand is when it seems very exotic. And occasionally you do get the assignments that are really fantastic. They give you enough time. They give you enough budget. You get to shoot the way you want, whatever. I don't even remember the last time that happened. Not that I do that kind of work anymore. But when you're shooting for other people, you're, and the way that I look at it is you're compromised from the moment that it begins because you're under their editorial policy. You're under the policies of their editor, their assignments editor. You're under the policy of how, what kind of work they allow to go into the magazine in terms of color, black and white, whatever. And all of these things are like restrictions. And then when you realize the kind of the lack of funding that's available for that kind of work, you, I, I literally had this conversation with someone yesterday that said, why am I even doing this work? Like editorial work isn't worth even doing. It doesn't even pay enough to pay the assistants. And why am I doing this kind of work? So I agree, it's better to be on your own. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it also, I mean, just to the, the way you're involved into something. I mean, if somebody asks me to do work, of course you get into it and you study. But it's just, I mean, all the projects I do, I do them out of uh, being touched by something I read, by something... Uh, I see by somebody I meet, which brings me to the subject matter. So I think it's a whole different starting point. And I think the way you're involved is, is just completely different. And what you said, I mean, it's from the first moment you depend on decisions and others, and you're so restricted in what you do. I've never, it's, it's like doing a job in a completely different way. So for yeah. me, the only way has become, I'm, I'm just applying for fundings. Yeah. Cultural Don't look at me. <laughs> That's the only way. <laughs> no, it's good. I think if you can work under the under grants and you get the funding to yeah. do it, I mean, th that's the reality is you can't really substitute for the time and the access and then the idea of doing a body of work that's very signature of you, then that gives it value. Mm. But there's the trade-off is that you there's no safety net. It's like the funding, you have to figure out a way to get it and, and to move on. But I knew you were going to answer that way. <laughs> I knew you. it. I mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> You also focus on a lot of women's issues. Mm -hmm. And uh, give us some examples of, of some of the things that you worked on in the past. Mm -hmm. The first pictures of yours, we talked about this earlier. The first pictures I remember were Tibet, black exactly. and white, yeah. 35 from Tibet. But I don't remember what the story was. No, it was on the, actually on the um, I've never been nuns. to Tibet. I'm, je I'm jealous. I mean, it was actually on the board. I have to be correct because it was not in Tibet itself. It was on the... Um, on the border to India. So I was like okay. in the ex exiled Tibetans community. Okay. And um, the place called Zanska, which is like completely mm, the Tibetan culture, but it's on the Indian side. And I was photographing back then, probably that was my first project touching women issues or sort of mm, how to put it. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, because I figured, because 
Buddhism as a religion interested me and, you know, I always saw it as a very equalized religion mm -hmm. so on. But then, you know, sort of digging a bit deeper, I realized that no, Tibetan Buddhism, especially Tibetan Buddhism, is not about equality and that women have not at all the same rights to pursue their path as nuns and that the women who become nuns are most of the times um, expulsed or sort of the black sheep of the family. Okay. Who are not ought to, you know, be able to marry somebody or like the classical way to go. And so they end up and, and most of the time, and that's stigma. I think that's a subject matter or that's the, what I touched with that project on, on photographing Tibetan nuns or Indian Tibetan nuns in their life and what it meant in comparison for the male uh, monks. So I was sort of doing a comparison between two young in my age back then, basically, and, and just trying to understand their lives and what they were thriving for. And seeing now the work I'm doing now, I'm still working on the stigma. On the, same. On the stigma <laughs> and on women being, for whatever motives, I mean, being out of religious motives or out of being different in whatever way. And that's something that has has been part of my photography all these years, I think. But it really, in the last four years now, the most recent project was a long-term project on on um, women who've survived acid attacks in six, meanwhile, seven countries. I've been documenting this. And so it was about the fact of how is com are the community dealing with women or people in general? I mean, it's something you can put in general, being different and... Uh, how are we Dif dealing with different and how so are we mm? before we go to, to go to that when yeah. you went to tibet to work on the nuns how long did you spend in tibet i or went twice in, yeah north in india i went twice actually i um the first time i mean approximately yeah three weeks i need your travel schedule no i'm kidding just approximately <laughs> three weeks three weeks and then i went back again another three weeks and what seeing as that was sort of your first big project is that accurate yeah did you have an idea in your mind of how long a project like that would take? No, because you never know. I mean, that's about interacting and doing that kind of work we do, um, that you all depend on the people. So you, you just meet. went and you stayed as long as you could, and then you went back. So the, 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 is the project that you're referring to now about the acid, victim, acid victims, that's the invisible mm -hmm. project, seven countries. Mm -hmm. And how long is that? How many... How much time has this taken? I started working on it in 2012, I think it was, and I finished. I finished up to a certain point where I did the book and the exhibition in 2014, but I'm still continuing in in other countries where I realized in the meantime, it happened to, you know, become more official that there, Colombia, for instance, a country where it's in proportion to the, to the, proportionally, it's like the country with the most cases nowadays that's uh, that's so surprising to me i don't i don't associate Kem uh columbia with acid victims no, i associate does. yeah nobody that's does. that's really interesting in fact i don't think i've ever seen a story about that mm. so the project is called in visible and with a with a slash in the middle and w tell us what it is what mm. it's about and then why you're actually in costa mesa yeah. of okay. all places <laughs> a part of meeting you <laughs> It was for the chocolate honeycomb. Exactly. That's totally worth actually coming here for that. Um, no, so invisible, uh, in the word came because thinking of, okay, what happen, What happens to, in that case, the women who've been 
uh, attacked, they've become basically invisible for society. I mean, nobody really knows uh, in, in the culture, especially where I've been documenting them, how to deal with them. And they're a lot of times being held responsible for it. So that invisible for me was I wanted to give them the platform because it's all about their struggle and their survival. It's not about being victim in that term, but it was really to show their strength of becoming invisible invis again after having been. And so just to give people uh, a background of what this yeah. actually means. So when I hear about someone who's, a, who's an acid attack yeah. victim, I think of a guy riding a motorcycle through a city and wherever, and someone jumps out with like a tray of acid and throws it in their face mm -hmm. as, a, as an attack or retribution or whatever. So uh, is, there, is there a pattern to why these women are attacked with acid? And is it, is, does that transcend all seven countries or are there different reasons in every country? I mean, you can resume it certainly to the fact it's all about mostly emotions, jealousy. I think that's like wow. the driving force a lot of times. And it's, and I mean, in India, a lot of times it's the, how you call it? Oh my God. Um, you can use any language you want. La dot <laughs> in oh. French. Um, we need a translator. No, 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 no. I know. Oh, it's awful. Why could I? How could I forget? Try German. Word? No, yeah. it's like the family of of the women when they get married are yeah. supposed to pay a certain. Okay. Oh, a certain fee. Yeah, fee, but it's a different word to it. Um, uh, there is a, a specific word to it. That's unfortunate. How can I not know it? As, well, You'll think of it eventually. I, maybe it's something. Yeah. Well, like two, three days from now. Exactly. So that's something, a tradition in, in India, um, which is officially prohibited, but it still exists. So okay. a lot of times it's not, let's say, the jealousy and only men being the perpetrators. A lot of times it's within the families. It's wow. the, the in-laws, the mother-in-law. Um, who would actually be responsible for the attack. Wow. So it can be sometimes, as what you mentioned with the motorcycle, can be also random attacks, but mostly it's the driving force is really uh, jealousy. And so when you rejected, actually... Rejected. When you go there, do you set up a backdrop and shoot portraits, or do you just shoot natural light, mm -hmm. or is there any, is there any spe specific sort of... Yeah, it chose plan. really two approaches to the project. I really wanted to do a documentary work, um, and this poetry series, because for me the importance, as I said, to give them the visibility or them giving their dignity in a way um, which they have, but, you know, sort of ex being able to express it. Um, I chose that portrait approach with this black backdrop, but always work with natural light. So, so it, it's interesting, and the reason I ask that is because yeah. having done a lot of portraits over the years there's something very very intimate and different about shooting a, a, a specific portrait where you go up to someone and you say i want like what well, i'm going to do with you after this interview is over i need to make a portrait that is very much a one-on-one -on -one thing and even for people who aren't victims of acid attacks it can be a very uncomfortable scenario to be on the other side of the camera so for these people who are in these sort of um in the position of flux in the community of now you're, you look in a way that's atypical. People maybe don't know what to do with you, how to treat you, how to look at you. How difficult was it for them to, to pose or, or, or were they really relieved or even happy that you were there to, I mean, was how difficult mm -hmm. was it to make those as opposed to the documentary stuff, which is more well, natural fly on the wall. Yeah, and especially the documentary work came after I did the portraits. There were all the women I followed then for a longer time and 
who I who obviously felt comfortable with me. Otherwise, she wouldn't have invited me to to, to part of her. her daily life. Yeah. So I think the portrait was very very different experiences I had during that time because obviously it's hard for some of them. It was really hard to show themselves and. There was one girl I just recall from Pakistan. I don't know if I have time for that little anecdote. But oh, yeah, it was go so ahead. Sweet from Pakistan, <laughs> is that what you said? Yeah. Okay. And um, so I was collaborating a lot of times with the Asset Survivors uh, Organization who, who were taking care in, in each of those countries. And so the good thing was that they were encouraging themselves among them, you know. So when once one started to open up, the others already felt a certain comfort. So I think that is okay. a dynamic already which, which helped when it happened to be that it was a group dynamic. And then there was this one girl and she was dressing all correct in like the Pakistan traditional clothing and uh, very shy at the beginning and, you know, trying to... And I just wait for the moment. I mean, literally they decide when I'm <laughs> yeah. pressing the button and... Then the next day she came back to me and said, oh, you know, I mean, thank you for that portrait. And, but, you know, could you do another portrait of mine? But, you know, I, this time I really would like to be like the way I want to be, a part of my culture. And so she actually got uh, undressed up to a certain point and opened her hair. And it was such a great, for me, it was just exactly what this goal probably of doing that work was that I want to feel them with comfort and yeah. with the self-confidence and showing themselves. So for me, that was a very encouraging example. And not that it happened in the 48 cases I photographed the women, but what I realized that a lot of them felt encouraged because maybe of being acknowledged because in sure in yeah. their reality, there's not much time that's all about survival. So there's not much time about reflecting of what happened to you or, you know, that you don't have that space. Yeah. So you I think, if, the, yeah. if, so a part of that I was there as a photographer, but I think just somebody who listens yeah, to sure, their story sure. and, and to give them the importance they, you know, they ought to get. Yeah. I think that's in your own environment when something like that happens to you and people, I mean, part of all this, the, the, the surgeries, I mean, there's such a financial burden for a lot of families and and them being held responsible a lot of times you know that doesn't yeah, allow you really to express yourself so i think that goes with the photography and i think to have chosen that type of portraiture also for them that had you know that had a meaning yeah. to stand there by them by yeah. themselves and and, yeah. and 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 show them in their strength and their it was survival. 100% about them and about survival it was really i didn't want to show victims i really want social survivors yeah there's something very different about a, a, a distinctive portrait like we are sitting down for a portrait session as opposed to the documentary stuff that portrait thing is a really fun thing to bounce in and out of because to the person that you're aiming the camera at it's a very very different experience and i think that that uh, a lot of times when you see someone that has even a handicap or an acid victim sometimes that even the people in the culture don't even know how to interact with a person like that. They don't know what that person wants or needs or how they feel. So it's everyone just seems to give them like a wide berth, like, oh, I don't, I don't really know what to do. So it's a pretty fascinating thing for me to think about as a portrait photographer to aim a camera at someone like that and say, what does this actually mean now? 
And it's pretty cool to hear the story of, of her saying, all right, now that the formal one's out of the way, let's like, you know, like she has a, a view of who she is in the world and like how she looks and what she wants. That's pretty, that's pretty great. Mm-hmm. So what are you in Costa Mesa for? So I'm still involved into the asset survivors topic as I'm collaborating with the Asset Survivors Trust International. Okay. Uh, it's a trust based in London and basically um, helping the NGO structures in those countries um, to do their work. And um, so I'm here with the director of of that uh, organization. And in Costa Mesa, tomorrow night, there's going to be a charity event All for right. that organization. And so, yeah, I'm just happy to be able to present my work and to talk from my point of view about, yeah, making the invisible visible. Visible. My, my neighbor's dogs are very excited about it, as you can tell. <laughs> They've they invited been... maybe after all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fundraiser, Costa Mesa, and you get to show your work. Yeah. And you're also going to be on a panel tomorrow in L.A., right? Yeah, we're, we're going to meet again. It's I nice. don't know if we're on the same panel. I think we're on the we're same on the panel. We're on the same panel? Yes. Okay. More official. It's on the same panel. It's about career path, which is going to be pretty funny, I think. Uh, So when you and I meet again, I'm guessing, I think it's going to be in Germany. I think it's finally going to be on your your home turf. Could be Berlin or maybe Munich or maybe all of them. I don't know. Maybe I'll take that. I'll be sophisticated and take the train around. Where, let's say that it's five years from now, 10 years from now, where do you envision that you're going to be? Where do you, where do you think the end game is or what it is? What is the end game with photography? Oh, wow, that's a tough question. I know. That's why I saved it to the last. I wanted you exhausted and then hit you with the hardest <laughs> one. Because you thought this was probably going to be like a five-minute interview, right? <laughs> you didn't know I had a page of questions lined up. Like, okay, trust me. I know. And I'm just staring on these wonderful... Oh, the blackberries. Yeah. No, they're good. <laughs> they're good. I'm just going to have to know. Um, no, you see, it's a very interesting question because if I might add, I mean, when you ask counterbalance and if you have to analyze what's the real job and you know what's the the ideal vision we have it but of course it has a hard a a price i mean being on the road all the time doesn't allow yourself to really build up something a private life i mean you're always on the run (laughs) and so that's something where i thought the other day you know in 10 10 years where i'm going to be at am i going to still be running around and and living those wonderful moments or am I going to be just be nourished by all the all these years and finally you know finding some a harbor (laughs) (laughs) a safe harbor a safe harbor and living out of memories I mean I don't know really in 10 years that's a good question I mean I hope I'm still you know that's a really interesting way of putting it because I think a lot of photographers especially people that do documentary work end end up in that scenario where you're like, I'm kind of too old to continue doing this work. Maybe I don't have the same desire to be on the road mm-hmm. all the time. And then what do I do? Do I teach? Is it, Am I okay with just living with the memories or do I need to continue this? Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people. I guess it's any any artistic mm-hmm. career maybe that they're faced with that. But And then probably you never can't never stop. I think that's the other part. You know, I mean, you I don't know. I stopped. <laughs> I gave up. I quit. Don't worry. It's <laughs> quitting, quitting is awesome. You should try it. <laughs> it may be awesome. Yeah, no, so it's a good question because I've been really, I mean, just I mentioned to you earlier, my whole equipment got disappeared in oh, Colombia at we, some point. We, we, got, we got to talk about that. But before, really? before we talk about the, mirac- the most miraculous equipment recovery story in the history of photography, <laughs> 
where, when you find this safe harbor at some point, let's say 10 years from now, you've done everything you wanted to do and you're like, I'm, I'm kind of the king of the world or the queen of the world. Where do you think that safe harbor is going to be? Is it in Germany or is it somewhere else? I'm still looking for it. Costa Mesa? Yeah, maybe after all. Let's <laughs> wait. <laughs> it is. We kind of have everything here. It's so sophisticated. Oh, the sea. I mean, definitely. That's yeah, why. Yeah, it is nice. Germany. So you're still looking. It's not Munich. Munich's cold. Munich. No, it's cold. And you, I, I really, the sea, I think just, I think the sea is something I'm really looking yeah, for. Yeah. But it could be. Maybe Southern Europe somewhere. I think Europe will be it. Yeah. Yeah. All Southern right. Europe. All right. I'll let you off the hook. I'm not going to ask for specific countries or cities <laughs> or beaches or whatever, but we're going to talk about, the last thing we're going to talk about is the equipment recovery. So this was what, two weeks ago, three weeks ago? Three weeks ago. You write me, you're on your way to Bogota. You land in Bogota and what happens? <laughs> it's like the most <laughs> surreal thing. I mean, I've been really a lot in Bogota and many places quite dangerous and never... Never had anything happen. Anything happened, nothing stealed, nothing done. And in that case, it wasn't even stolen. But I was picked up by a very official taxi driver from Cabify, which is like a company, very serious. And he picked me up, and I could already tell he's not quite concentrated. But in any case, for me, it was 4 o'clock in the morning, and I was really tired. And so we get to the car, and I had like three bags, my camera bag and my two other bags with part of the equipment and some clothes and we put the two other he puts them in and I say okay you know no problem I'm just gonna take my camera bag in the back of the seat and he's like oh no 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 senora senora um you have to feel comfortable it's four o'clock in the morning I'm gonna put it all in the front next to me and I said oh come on really it's not necessary so he's insisting like the real machismo yeah and I was so tired I said you know just do it the way you want to do it <laughs> I really don't care yeah I and I shouldn't have said that and so I had opened the door ready to sit in and I brought him my bag up to the front and I go back sit in and he closes and I think okay everything is in and we reached my off. little hotel my little cottage where I sat and then he's like where's your bag and like that's what I'm asking you. Where is my third oh. bag? So literally, it turns out that he forgot it, putting it in because it was so busy cleaning up the seat to make it nicely look for my luggage. So it took two weeks, and it was actually the day... So you, this, this bag has your cameras, your computer, everything. everything. Hard drive. Everything. Computer. So basically, you're thinking it's it's gone. It's gone forever. So you go and you spend two weeks in Bogota and you're doing your thing. Did you borrow not a camera? Not doing my thing. I, I really, I tried through friends getting, but you know how it is. It's not yeah. the same. <laughs> yeah, you can't get the same stuff. <laughs> exactly. So it was very different. And two days after was the peace signing in Cartagena. And I was literally trying. I mean, it, it seemed like it somehow was meant to be me taking this picture of this peace signing because... Now we know what happened. The piece yeah. isn't on yeah, there. Yeah, there is no signing so now. So there was a <laughs> there was there was a higher sense to it now, retrospectively thinking. But yeah, it disappeared, and uh, so somebody said we should put that public in the radio. Everybody should hear it. All the ladrones, all the criminals, they should be aware and they should know that this luggage has to get back. So basically, your your luggage is gone. You're trying to borrow equipment, and then one of your friends says, "Look, um, I know a guy on the radio." They sh we should just get this out to the public because maybe, who the hell knows? Maybe the person who took it opens it up and goes, well, you know, I didn't know she had a purpose here. Like, she's here to cover she the accord and do what has this history here. So you go on the radio, you give your sob story, <laughs> and what happens? 
there were there were like were like two reactions one guy from the airport who came back to me and called me and said you know you should really insist on looking on the cameras and I said yeah well I I tried <laughs> you know they didn't let me in and there was another guy also from from the from from the airport who said you know you should read so there was nothing really helpful and i thought okay that was it and that was it's it gone. I met yeah. yeah yeah so i really saw it and the way the guards like when i went back they were so corrupt i thought okay it landed already <laughs> yeah it's already been <laughs> exactly. sold and the money's been laundered so, yeah so with that state of mind that's exactly why i mentioned earlier because in that process where you realize when everything is gone you start thinking okay <laughs> my life yeah hmm. <laughs> what is, hmm, is there any message to it so yeah and after 10 days i get this email in german and very bad german i think oh god wow this criminal he's really working it hard <laughs> he's kind of sophisticated he's a he's a criminal that speaks german kind of so all right maybe he's you know not your bottom rung thief maybe he's a couple steps up on. so yeah so we he appeared but he disappeared again for four days and i'm thinking oh my god he was just asking where we should meet and you thought it was a scam i thought it was a scam i thought maybe he got afraid that i was already you know with the police and everything and i would gonna yeah. chase him and would have terrible consequences so he'd rather disappear again so i had all these the cinema going on in my head and all the people surrounding me were like this was really like a little <laughs> yeah a drama <laughs> drama so um so i managed him to get back by telling him listen you know i really want to do that face to face i don't have anybody involved in that so he shows up again by email we end up um connecting via whatsapp and i'm asking him to send me whatever he has to make sure that's my stuff and as a matter of fact yes he sends me like only and i mean let's say not the cameras only my computer and hard drive i'm like okay that's okay, already that's, hard, that's like that's like yeah. already something and then he keeps on you know insisting we meet on the airport but only a week later i was like no this is not happening why on saturday and it turns out that he says no we could meet in town but you have to come to my office and i'm thinking criminal office like <laughs> this doesn't work and so we're getting you know i'm asking so where exactly it turns out that it's like sort of the fbi of uh, the <laughs> banks of colombia <laughs> controlling oh so <laughs> so i thought yeah. after all maybe not so corrupt <laughs> maybe he's not a criminal <laughs> okay <not. laughs> let's rethink that so i go there and it turns out that he was just a translator he was at least able to to deal with my camera and my computer gear and managed oh. to get my contact down the lady who found it was actually the wife of a taxi driver ah. picking up some clients and parking at the same parking lot and then they realized that this this you know suitcase is there for an hour between the time they pick up the clients and getting back and they're asking the guards are you not going to do anything about that and they're like, no, 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 we're not going to take any responsibility of that suitcase. So, so basically, another taxi driver and his wife pull up. They look out and see your bag all by its lonesome sitting there. Then they, they take off and they deliver a client somewhere. An hour later, they come back and it's your bag is still sitting there. Still. And with these three people, guards. Three guards. The three guards are there. With and, dogs? And these people go, hey, dude, uh, with the dog, you're not going to take care of the bag? No, 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 we don't want any responsibility. So the couple takes it. Take the, the taxi thinking company. because, yeah, what's so, going to happen? So And then they, they take it thinking, we'll open it and figure out whose bag it is. Exactly. But then they don't speak English and don't speak German. The only <laughs> thing they figured, the only clue they had was that I just had booked my flight for Cartagena for the signing of the piece. Oh. And they opened the computer and they said, oh, this person is a real journalist. So we got to <laughs> <We gotta, laughs> find, better this find 
<laughs> so that's how it happened. And that's how I got it all back. And everything was there. I couldn't believe they asked me to open it in front of their eyes and checking if everything was there. And the only thing really missing, Danny will not believe it, were two plates, souvenir plates of Munich. The most kitsch thing oh, I've ever I've bought. I've always wanted one of those. They're gone. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you have to come to Munich by yourself. I'm coming to Munich for those. <laughs> and those were two plates I had promised a brothel owner, Transostai, from the Santa Fe Bari, which is like a really, really quite heavy, hectic um, uh, place. place in Bogota. So where anything could have happened to my cameras, but nothing happened. Ever. Nothing happened. And so you were so going to give him the plates. As I'm going to give her the plates. And it turned out that was the two things I think that, that lady, that elderly lady took for her own apartment. That's totally worth it. It was totally yeah. worth it. I hope they're hanging on the wall. I hope <laughs> there's like a spotlight highlighting them. Maybe she had a secret Munich fascination her exactly. whole life. I don't know. And but all I know confessed. is I would rather have the cameras in the computer than the plates. <laughs> what, I didn't say anything. I didn't. What cameras it. were they? Um, that's a Fuji yeah. XT1 and then a Canon nice. 5D Mark II. Those are Two good lenses. ones to get back. I know. Yeah. And all the memory. All of my. Oh, yeah. And you know what? The worst thing was that I had brought another 5 terabyte hard drive external yeah. to yeah. do my backup before leaving to Cartagena the day yeah. after I arrived from the airport. And I thought, what will happen between the airport and oh, my little yeah. cottage? What, what could happen? Nothing. It's impossible. These taxi drivers, they're super official. There you go. I shoot five terabytes in a morning. That's how good I am. <laughs> well, I'm happy that you got your stuff back. It's so rare to hear uh, a popular, not a popular, a positive story about anyone's gear disappearing for any amount of time and coming back. I think maybe that's maybe the first time I've ever heard that And we're happening. talking Colombia. I mean, yeah. it's the country Look, of wonders. I love those people. That's uh, and The Colombians are now on my top 10 most favorable people <laughs> list. That's pretty cool. I mean, it really is. Those people could have done anything with that stuff, okay. and it's pretty amazing. I love hearing good stories about gear coming back and because uh, there's a lot of it that, that never comes back. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. We actually spoke for an hour and one minute, which is pretty remarkable, and I don't edit, so people are going to get every single I second of this. No, I don't edit. Why would I do that? It takes too long. That's true. Why I need to like. I need to move on. We're on a panel tomorrow. <laughs> I got too many things to do as it is. So um, thanks so much for doing this. I think the the inside about being a photographer and your history in particular very interesting. To go from Magnum into the Turnleys to Reses of the world and then become a really successful like long term project photographer, which is what so many people want to do. And it's difficult. It is much, much more difficult, I think, than what people imagine. So any insights that you have, all this stuff was, is such a great thing to share with people because it's tough, man. It's tough. It's hard to do. And you've done a really good job, and you're still doing it. So I hope tomorrow night the fundraising goes well. There's a lot of people with, with serious cash in these parts. I hope they, they open up their, uh, their purses and, and pocketbooks and, and you know make it worth your while. Thank you so much. It was wonderful talking to you. I know. I'm sure we're going to keep talking, but for this interview, <laughs> is it, it is now officially over. Thanks again. Thank you.